Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Well, hello and welcome again to Cross Section, where we look at some of those news stories, the cultural stories and their intersection with faith and our passion for Jesus. I am joined again by Alicia and Danny, but not in person this week, online, on Zoom. Yes. Hi, guys. Our audio will be better this week. Hello. The banter might be slower, but the audio will be better. This is the compromise that we make. Mm. That's Alyssa's version of there was no banter <laughs> last week. What are you talking about? Look, last week we did talk about Net Zero and Rishi Sunak's announcement, the Prime Minister's announcement on that. We got some great feedback from Ben, one of our listeners. I will not read it all because it was substantive, but really helpful and engaging, reminding us actually of someone, Sir John Houghton, who was on the International Panel for, Panel for Climate Change, and even Jocko Christian, who's been in, was in the space for many years. I say was, as in he is had passed away a couple of years ago. And I remember meeting him and chatting to him about some of the work that he was doing in this space. But Ben did remind us that Britain is doing quite well. It is not, but certainly far from the worst and has made significant steps. But but he also reminded us there was way more to go and uh, did push us to say, look, net zero is essentially the primary way to do this because we've got to reduce our emissions on the one side, but also do much more in terms of absorbing greenhouse gases because we, we have reduced our emissions. We are doing that. Um, but they are still going up just more slowly. And then we've got to do the other side of that, which is more things to absorb the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Otherwise, we've absolutely no chance in meeting some of these um, goals that we've set. And those goals, he was saying, are legitimate. So great to have the feedback interaction. The main thing I want to say on that is it was great to have that correspondence. And you never know, we might get Ben to write a piece or do more about it. Danny, <laughs> Alicia, anything more to, to say on the feedback we've been getting? No, it's just, it's well, it's great to have the engagement. And I think it got me thinking about some of the complexities around net zero today as we're recording. A new oil field has been given the go-ahead north of Scotland. So that's likely to attract significant criticism for saying, actually, why are we continuing to uh, try and uh, drill for oil? Um, I think there's a lot more we're going to talk about this, but I think it's, it's finding a way to talk about it that recognises the need for action and the need to take significant action that might be costly and that might require sacrifices, but also the need for nuance and understanding and not just going for short-term solutions. I mean, for me, it's just a general appreciation uh, that Ben heard my, I don't really know much about net zero policy, <laughs> and then provide a four-page briefing that was said and shared with love. I, I appreciate that and that learning. So thank you very much, Ben. Any other topics you'd like a four-page briefing on that we could ask <laughs> listeners to do? <laughs> do our jobs for us. Okay, so we're going to pick up a couple of things again that are in the news or that are topical. So the first story we are looking at is, you've put a title here, The Rumour Mill on Conversion Therapy. Danny, do you want to kick us off as to what we mean by the rumour mill? Some people might have seen one or two stories on this. Yeah, over the last two weeks, there have been a number of media stories discussing what is going on at the heart of government about uh, plans around conversion therapy or conversion practices. Um, the government have repeatedly said that they were they are, were planning on introducing legislation to ban or to end conversion practices. Uh, they held a consultation at the end of 2021, uh, which we engaged in. They then said there were then there was then a, then a U-turn and then another U-turn sometime in 2022, and they've then committed to introducing it in this parliamentary term. Um, 
at the heart of it is we don't know what's happening. It would seem by some of these news reports that the government have looked at the evidence, looked at the situation and recognised the challenges of introducing new legislation, but also the sufficiency of the legislation that we already have to address places where people are abused and are harmed by people's actions. And I think that's the thing to that I want to emphasise here is that that there are situations where people have suffered abusive and coercive behaviour and the law should deal with that. But actually, the law already has the, the tools to do that. And I think it's about ensuring that those things are done well. Alessia, you lead in terms of policy perspective for us as an organisation on this. The government has said in the Times piece, allegedly the government's saying that other attempts in other places have been problematic or ineffective. Uh, what's, yeah, Danny's already said a little bit about it, but what is our, our primary engagement look like with government around this topic? Well, it's also important to state that there's a difference of direction potentially between Scotland and Westminster, but I don't want to bring in that confusion just just too early. But no, it's important to state that, as Danny mentioned, that it's tackling and addressing issues whereby there has been coercive and abusive treatment towards another. There's a recognition of that, but also recognising, particularly in our current landscape, that there are people of faith. Uh, as well as those outside the faith community that look to the church for guidance of support around their sexual identity and their kind of gender identity. And I think this is the challenge that the government has had to face in that it's trying to ban practices to deal with sexuality and then equally to deal with gender transition. And I think that's where kind of particularly Westminster has come in. How do we create a universal piece of legislation that tackles the, the theme of conversion although we have in kind of gender identity, a form of conversion that takes place. So I think that's the challenges that they have faced. And we've always explained that the role of the church uh, is when seeking to support and engage in these spaces, but do not criminalize kind of faith practices on this topic. So there is that tension, particularly around the language of conversion. What is conversion therapy? What does that mean in a unified uh, definition that is able to and this And this comes back to what is a risk of becoming my hobby horse at the moment that politicians make soundbite commitments and then when it actually comes to doing something about it it gets an awful lot more complicated and we've, we've seen this we have seen this in scotland as well so scotland have been uh, on a trajectory towards a much wider ranging approach on conversion practices um but even there a commitment to introduce legislation has now been downgraded to a commitment to hold a consultation um, in this parliamentary year. So I think there's been some recognition of the complexities there, that while they might want to do something or they've made a commitment in a headline to do something, when it actually comes to delivering workable policy around something, it's harder and you can't ignore the the legal implications and uh, human rights commitments and the, the balance of things that we want to uphold in a society. And I think that, that yeah, that's my hobby horse, is that we, we need to get past some of the short-term soundbites and the kind of, we must do something, political mentality. And I think here, what you're seeing, hopefully, is actually a bit of pushback, a bit of challenge on the government saying, yes, we get your intent to tackle these harmful and abusive practices, but you need to do something that actually works. And actually, you've got some of the tools at your disposal already to achieve that. So, yeah, so we are maintaining positions, even Dark Alliance, coercive and abusive practices are wrong. We have always said we believe those are already illegal. 
and the government over the last few years has done some digging, seems to be discovering the same. Uh, but they keep doing this funny thing where things get leaked, and that's where we don't have the clarity. For people listening along, Alicia, what I mean, what can we do around this? Uh, sorry, I should add, you've added that distinction in Scotland. They have probably been looking to push further ahead, but have scaled that back. What can people be doing right now around this? I mean, as a team, as an organization, we will be um, sharing updates around specific engagement once there's clarity. But in the interim, I guess it's that continued prayerful consideration um, around the law and the policy. But I think beyond that, it's about people. There are individuals within our church um, communities, whether of faith or not, they're exploring faith. How do we connect the good news of Jesus Christ to those challenging conversations around sexuality, gender, and identity? And so that continued piece around prayer is important, but then also engaging with the issues within your church. And of course, we've produced additional resources around that in terms of Transformed that looks at kind of the biblical and pastoral engagement of our day around gender and identity. Super. So there are lots of complex issues. We discussed Russell Brand last week. We were looking at consent. We've discussed RSE in schools. It has links to this because this, again, goes to potentially social transitioning of children within schools. And this is where the thing has got complicated for the government because this does the conversion therapy stuff is both about uh, gender and sexuality, as you guys have said. So we do have lots of resources, but it is complicated for everybody. It's complicated for us. And this is the space we work in and inhabit. So we understand for listeners, I'm sure it is too. So we wanted to update you on that bit. That's uh, the first story we wanted just to kind of cover. Um, the second story we want to look at is around policing and guns. Another story has been in, in the news over the last few weeks. And a story we spoke about about a year ago, this was a uh, uh, the death of Chris Caba, and then the inquiry into that. And I say death, that's the first term that we're using, but then the question is, an officer is now being charged in relation to a firearms officer. And in response, the Met Police, uh, some of them were laying down their guns uh, around this. Uh, Let's let me come to you around this story. Uh, what more do you want to say in terms of even background to this story and uh, helping us think about it? Yeah, it's definitely a challenging story. It's talking about the kind of the unhealed wounds between the Met Police and the black community. Chris Crowber was a young man from South London, uh, black in, uh, in heritage, uh, died uh, unarmed. Uh, and so there's a level from the community, particularly in South London, of where's the accountability? And yet in this moment, which I found very fascinating, an initial response by firearms is to say we're going to lay down our arms we're not gonna you know we're not gonna move forward we're not this is our kind of protest as it were and I I think for me just observing from the outside the Met Police is a complex institution and the layer of race racism and kind of policing of black communities makes it equally harder to navigate but there is that level of accountability that needs to happen. Who is responsible? It might not be an individual, it might be a process. And I think there should be an opening of scrutiny of what happened on the day that led to an unarmed man losing his life. So I think my initial reaction has been one of surprise, but as we know, the uh, the armed officers and the unit have kind of gone back and back to work as it were, so yeah. And I mean, I was struck again by this story because we were actually, again, we mentioned last week we were together with our EA Council, uh, church leaders from a variety of backgrounds when the uh, story broke about the arrest of the officer. 
But what also struck me was uh, two of our council members couldn't be there, two black church leaders from two different places within the UK because somebody had been stabbed within their community and their pastoral need in that moment required them to be present with them. I mean, just incredibly striking in a relatively small number of people that that, that could be the case in, in one two-day mm -hmm. period. So probably just bringing that story, like for us to say, this is the story that's hit the headlines, but below that were these two stories in, in local communities that again, and definitely in one case, the person had died, I'm not sure in the other uh, what the outcome was, but these were the stories that were facing us. Danny? I, I think it's interesting that the police officer who's police officers who said that they would not be using or taking their, their weapons on duty, their protest was against the potential naming of the suspect. Uh, and I think there's two key things here. One is that someone who has committed an unlaw unlawful act should be prosecuted regardless of whether they're a member of the police or not. I think there is a complexity in understanding the 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 challenges that police face in making quick decisions, but also that doesn't give them a blank uh, check to do any kind of behaviour. Uh, that you can you can still a police officer can still be guilty of criminal behaviour, and I think in this context, if the police officer has done that, then he should be charged and prosecuted in that way. I think the the problem that the police face is that do we have do they have confidence to do their jobs? Do they feel that they are able to take the risks and to take the quick decisions that might be needed, or is there so much pressure to not do something, i.e., fire a gun, that actually they put other lives at risk? So I think there there is a challenge for the police officers, and I think their 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 dilemmas and their tasks are hard. Police officers very rarely use their gun in the uk um but obviously when they do it becomes much more important uh, because of the consequences involved so i think there is an understandable concern by police but i think there is also the need for the judicial system and we talked about this last week as well to run its course regardless of who it's dealing with so danny you talked about the confidence of the police potentially to use their weapons and i think the home secretary has said that but but on the other side unless they forwarded a survey this morning that i took part in which was a lot about the confidence of the community to understand the policing and admit i took part in it as a guy living in northern Ireland, where the questions were probably slightly less relevant to me the context is every police officer here has a gun and carries them off duty and i remember the first time uh, i was stopped in scotland by a police officer for cutting across um, the car park in Tesco, shall we say. And being a very humble young lawyer that I was, myself and my colleagues all pointed out that they couldn't do much to us in a private piece of land. But I also couldn't take the guy seriously because he was in a woolly jumper and had no guns. Um, and that was the first time I realised that most police officers don't carry guns in the mainland, whereas every police officer in Northern Ireland has a gun. So our culture is slightly different. But the point, after my little story segue, was really, let's say, around confidence both ways. So the police are saying, do we have confidence in terms of when we can use guns? But actually the community is asking substantial questions about confidence in the police, stop and search, community engagement, and why it is that black lives in this situation seem more likely to be on the receiving end and, and questions around that. So what's our, I suppose, tell us more about the survey, our role as church leaders and, and, and the community, yeah, churches in a community around some of these questions. That was a question. Yes, solve it for us. It was <laughs> there was no inflection, so I didn't know if it was a <laughs> you know a running thought. I guess most importantly, the role of Christians, the church in general, is 
acting a level of a bridge we have a message of reconciliation there's going to be moments where we're going to have to be brave to engage with the inverted commas the other the process engage with the met police in a constructive way we have many christian officers within the met police and other police forces across the country that are living day to day in this space how can we prayerfully be holding them up to be a christian witness in their workplace when everything feels pressured so I guess there's a, an immediate role for all of us to be mindful of the role that we play both prayerfully and relationally with those in our community or those that we know of that work within the Met Police to kind of be encouraged and to be a faithful witness in their workplace. You are listening to Cross Action. We thank you for joining us. We love to have people listening along. You are welcome to engage with us. You can email us in some shape or form that I don't know the answer to. Crosssection at eauk.org. I look towards well Danny. I think that sounds right. Uh, you will find, I think, only Danny and I on social media, Danny Webster and Peter Linus. Alicia is far too sensible and to be on social media. Uh, but you can find that EA UK News as well on social media. Engage with us uh, and, and let us know what you think in terms of what you're listening to. And do remember to jump on the EAUK.org website. You'll find lots of the resources that we're talking about and you can become a member. And I'll always remind you that's an opportunity to support us in what we're doing. With that, we move to our final story, which is really a whole series of stories that, again, have been cropping up in the news recently around various aspects of inclusivity, be it in sport, be it in the world of pop music and Louise Redknapp, be it in politics and government and the Home Secretary Suella Braverman's comments on a number of fronts recently. Um, we are wrestling as a culture with where it begins and where it ends in inclusivity. So, Alicia, maybe the stories that struck you first this week or caught your attention on this one. Lovely. I think I will start with music, Eternal, a throwback to when I was growing up. So Eternal, are they a 90s band, a three-part band? I uh, definitely 90s. Group, 90s, girls group. And the news story this week of how Louise Redknapp, who is one of the band members, has decided to kind of withdraw from a, uh, an eternal reunion tour over LGBTQ row. So there has been disagreement, particularly between two of the band members, I think it's Esther and Bernie Burnett, who have basically said, we're all for a reunion. This is me paraphrasing, but they are somewhat reluctant to do a tour within of Pride shows or the LGBTQ specifically that's being quoted because they felt that the gay community was being hijacked by a trans community and they do not support this. So Louise Redknapp, in response to that, has come out and said, well, I am a huge avid supporter of the LGBT community. Uh, I do not support these views. And as a result, has decided to withdraw from the group and the shows, which is it's quite a bold decision. It's not just I'm not refusing to work with my work colleagues. Eternal has been around for decades. These are two what I would imagine would has be been around friends. forever. You have to say, surely. Ha ha ha, there's a granddad joke. Oh, you <laughs> set them up for me, Alyssa. Oh, dearie me. But yes, Eternal has been around for 20 years as a band. Uh, caveat that. Uh, these are not just work colleagues. These are who I would imagine are friends. And in this moment have decided to lay aside friends' views and personal convictions in favour of supporting uh, a cause that is dear to her heart. And I just find that tension probably the reality that most of our listeners are facing. How do you how do you engage with that? Well, apparently Eternal were formed in 1992. So they are 
30 years. Thank you, Google. Well, actually, I was just looking at an article about their original manager, uh, Dennis Ingoldsby, has accused Louise Redknapp of throwing bandmates Esther and Vernie Burnett under the bus, who manages Esther and Vernie, said their views have been misrepresented and weaponized as he accused Redknapp of an effort to get them cancelled. This is under a story entitled Louise Redknapp's team trying to get Christian members of Eternal cancelled. So it is interesting how this is not quite sure which side's uh, accusing who of which, uh, who's the one trying to get who cancelled. But it shows partly how hostile some of these issues have become. And yeah, how in trying to something that is often talked about, Pride Festivals in the name of inclusivity actually becomes quite something that ends up excluding people. Yeah, I think it's the two framings I saw where this is really a trans row. A number of the people's have said, papers have said, so it's specifically, as you said, Alicia, it's how the LGBT community and the trans community interact. And essentially that women are being excluded from that. And they're, the Bennett sisters are concerned about the treatment of women and girls in this. But there is also a framing that they are Christians and that's hinted at or expressly stated. But without they haven't articulated anything to do with their Christian views informing this. It's sort of being implied in the conversation. And uh so I think that's another, I thought, an interesting element as to how this was being kind of chatted about and the sense that they were slightly thrown under the bus because Louise Redknapp has the big name and fame and went hard and heavy with her narrative and kind of left them to it as the lesser, kind of the just lesser known members of the band, it felt like. But it's not the only story, so I do, and, and time is ticking on. So, I mean, what do we say? There's race and sport. There was a gymnastics clip that circulated out of Ireland this week um, that caught a number of our attentions. <laughs> the attention of a number of us. That's a better way of phrasing that. It was an older clip. Uh, again, a young black gymnast who was ignored in the medal ceremony or in the giving out of medals. And it kind of got traction, though, because Simone Biles, the, the Olympic, multi-Olympic gymnast out of the States, tweeted her support and engagement around this. And I guess for me, these stories all really came together with the Home Secretary. Who wants to chip? I mean, Swella Braverman's comments really have dialed this up around where we are in human rights, the European Convention of Human Rights, immigration, and who are, in her view, legitimate people to be uh, looked after. And she's talked about the misguided dogma of multiculturalism and that women and those who are gay are not necessarily entitled to protection under the European Convention of Human Rights if they have simply well, been discriminated against rather than persecuted? Well, I'll come in on Swella Braverman's comments. I I think it is, it is both political, as everything is, but also uh, within it, there is a kernel of an important point that is worth pulling out, I think. She, is speaking to, she was speaking to a US think tank. I think there's been some criticism of what she, what is she doing doing that how is she uh upholding our international commitments rather than potentially trashing them i i think the questions about how the refugee convention are interpreted and applied are important i think the problem is is that she's caricaturing it in a way that isn't often the case so people can claim asylum or, and refugee status for a whole host of reasons and one of them is that they are persecuted for their their sexuality or their religious beliefs her criticism is is that this has been broadened so people who only face discrimination um, are seeking to 
um, receive asylum and refugee status. The question is whether that's actually borne out in reality. Is it people who are only being discriminated and not being persecuted who are achieving or receiving refugee status? And I think uh, that is the problem is, is that she has used this as part of a way to attack the global uh, refugee conventions and our obligations under that. And again, she gets a couple of headlines. It can be seen as her talking tough on international issues and the the government are still seeking to speak tough on issues of migration and immigration. And this feels like part of that, that we want to take tough action, but international conventions, European Convention on Human Rights, international refugee conventions are the things that are stopping us from taking the action that we want to or need to take. So small p politicking you're saying going on we've been involved around the immigration bill for a considerable length of time Melissa. again you've been leading on that for us what do you think to what danny's been saying i think danny is more fair and balanced than i am in his response <laughs> i'm still i'm still adjusting i was listening to part of the speech in full today and i was just like wow she's do you know what it's not even what she said it was the comments that I found were more revealing and who knows people on YouTube say things for reaction or they might be speaking with an actual conviction behind what they're saying but there was a huge support for for the first time a government minister saying as it is the first time a minister diagnosing the problem and you know looking to secure our borders and I think the whole time the thing that I'm listening to, the part that's less emotive, is that this speech wasn't for the majority of the UK. In fact, as Danny rightly mentions, it's she's in the US in a, a right-wing think tank that has very strong convictions and positions around migration. Uh, and so she's willing and wanting to win back that part of the Conservative membership. She's wanting to win back parts of the red wall and thinking you know on the horizon of a general election and so she's stoking the fire as it were a motiving language and tone giving the sound bites ahead of party conference next week and so it is a political moment of her kind of stepping up as a leader so a part of me engages with it on that level where I'm less emotive but there's a part of it that I'm just a little angry in the sense of I do believe there are are helpful conversations of how do you resolve the kind of the migration trend and all that's taking place. But I feel there's a way that needs more collaboration, cooperation, innovation in thinking, rather than stoking some of the cultural wars and kind of coming up with slogans that um, kind of ignite and creates a them and us narrative and divides the country. I mean, there's been a strong reaction both politically and within celebrity kind of saying, I cannot believe that this has been said. So yeah, there's a part of me that's still absorbing and I, I, there's a little bit of indigestion with her speech. <laughs> yeah, I think, Go ahead. Well, I think migration is one of the global challenges that as a society we have to address. And it is, it is, it is not just the UK. The UK obviously experiences it in its own particular context, but it is a global trend that needs to be considered. And how we navigate that in the coming decades is important. There was, a, I think, one of her comments was that potentially 780 million people could potentially be considered uh, uh, as 
having refugee status. I have not crunched the numbers. I suspect that is uh, hard to substantiate. Um, but that's about one-tenth of the global population. Um, but there is significant movement of people. And most of that movement of people happens within countries and uh, within regions. So most people are not seeking to travel over oceans and across uh, continents. Some people do, but most of the displacement happens locally, uh, either within or within neighbouring countries. So migration is an issue as a society we have to get better at doing and we just we do need to get beyond the kind of the headlines and then the, the counter criticism so uh, yes there is a significant policy thing to deal with here but actually i'm not sure this is a particularly helpful approach now and again recently we i think we all heard the same talk about migration and mission in a sense the number of people on the move uh, i think the figure in that talk we heard was a billion but as you say that's often going to be in country but these are people moving with their faith there are both positives and negatives that there are people of other faith coming to the UK. That is a kind of mission field on our doorstep as people come in. There are a lot of people coming with the Christian faith into the UK and to other countries, but we're looking at the UK and we have seen that reverse mission, if you like, and many coming from other cultures, but with the Christian faith. And that is changing some of our church dynamics and numbers. Our best guess is about a quarter of the evangelical church in the UK is non-white. And then there's lots of interesting stats down below that and gets us thinking. But I also, I think we all agree that the language and tone on this is something we've got to be really careful about. There is electioneering coming, so we've got to hear everything through that lens. We've moved into election mode, and this podcast will be constantly <laughs> bumping into that because we can all put put our best guesses to when that's coming and is it coming forward, and we could have a whole show probably about that. But the nuance is so often I see people saying, either everybody's welcome or nobody's welcome, and you're like, those are easier things to say, but anything beneath that becomes like, I don't think either of those positions are easily tenable. It's way more complex underneath what we mean by refugees, a migrant, a legal migrant, a legal migrant, the different status that people have and the realities of moving from discrimination or persecution and first country of call and all these questions in it. So we're going to try and engage more substantially in that. For me, one of the things is the feeling of being overwhelmed around this conversation that's just so complex what can we do i'm going to come to both of you in a minute and ask you for your closing comments on that or anything else so uh let's go danny i'll go to you first what's what's a practical response we can do in terms well, of engagement this well one of the things i've been thinking about is how people move as you say for a variety of different reasons some of it can be economic some of it can be family some of it because they are forced from where they live for different reasons whether it's warfare or persecution and um i was thinking this tension between discrimination and persecution from a situation that is clearly not preferable but to one at which is unsustainable um is the, perhaps the threshold and the, how we look at different people moving for different reasons so the sexuality has been in the news this week but people also face persecution for their religious belief in places all around the world for some of those people, they have a deep commitment to their place that means that they actually stay, regardless of the persecution they face and the risk that they face. They choose to stay where they are because they believe in the power of the gospel and the power that, and the importance of continuing to worship God, to reach out to their neighbours in those communities, even when that risks their life. And that, that's just incredible. Like other For other people, they do uh, seek asylum because of the persecution they face for their faith and it's vital that we have a system that is able to protect people in that situation and this was very large because just this week i've been uh, planning with some of our member organizations a 
a prayer event that we're hosting on the 5th of November. We're working with Open Doors UK, CSW and Release International to pray for the persecuted church. Uh, we'll put a link to that prayer event in the show notes. It's on the 5th of November at 8pm um, in the evening. So we'll put a link so you can sign up and join us for that webinar. Excellent, Danny. Alicia? I guess just encourage that migration does impact every community in the United Kingdom. So often it's easier to engage with kind of the the political narratives or the sound bites that are coming out at a higher level and not realize actually what's happening in my community. So maybe the starting point for churches, for Christians, is to maybe start within your local church and there, there's difference that we, exists within tell me your story tell me your heritage tell me your family context or as you're doing mission and ministry outside the church building there's going to be the conversation of migration that's hitting there and have a curiosity of people's lives and stories and I think the Lord will lead you in how you can respond locally as well as in in kind of the national conversation so I guess somewhat taking the macro to the micro and engaging your local community on this issue of migration would be great. Wonderful. And we have seen people coming, obviously, from Ukraine. We know that from uh, Hong Kong. And there was a significant movement around that. Uh, and people like Krish Kandai, who used to work at EA, has been on the front foot in terms of that. We've seen uh, people coming from Iran and some of the stories. So and a lot there's a lot of richness and diversity in what's coming. And a lot of people of faith coming from those areas, a lot of Christians, uh, some Orthodox and some coming with some different cultural and Christian understandings. And we have and that's phenomenal in terms of the challenge, I think. And I do want to close with that, you know, when I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. You know, we are to show hospitality to the stranger when a stranger or sojourner is in our land and welcome them into our house. I don't do that as a simple like, oh, carte blanche, that's it, because that, that would be at odds with what I said earlier. I think for many of us, that's local. And what does it look like literally in our homes to bring people in the stranger who may be just a few hundred meters away from where we are? We can't solve the global thing but we have to engage and we do that with world evangelical alliance with the european evangelical alliance and locally here as in uk wide with ea and with other groups we want to do that on a policy level but for many of us it's also incredibly local and it's people we're, we're seeing people in our streets in a different way than maybe was the case even a few years ago and we're seeing some of those changes and yes they are tough and challenging but actually there's also massive opportunities in it and so it's a theme we will undoubtedly return to. We want to thank you for joining with us today. And we want to say be blessed wherever you are right now and what you're doing, whether you're out for a run, a walk, listening online, late at home, wherever you may be. Thanks for joining us in Cross Section. And we look forward to seeing you next week when we will have a special guest, Phil Knox, a good friend of ours, who'll be talking a little bit more, no doubt, about his new book and about friendship and how we can build those relationships and how that can change, how we get to share Jesus with others in our lives. Thank you and be blessed. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.